Good morning. Good to see everybody here. We are missing a lot of people this Labor Day weekend, the last long weekend before we really get into the full routine. So, but I'm glad that you're here. If you would turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, so it's going to be near the back of your New Testaments. So if you're in, get back to Hebrews, keep going. If you get to Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far. Just between there. And we are starting a new series. Uh, and books of 1 and 2 Peter will be there this fall. Let me uh, re-emphasize that we have a picnic uh, today. And that we would love to see you at the picnic. Uh, that would be great. Uh, I also need to say that I know there are some of you who are government contractors and government employees and have to report foreign contacts. And since our Ukrainian family will be there today, you have been duly warned. Um, so I don't expect any issues, but I know some of you have to do that sort of thing. I am not one of them. Um, I can talk to whoever. The, uh, Hopefully you've gotten the first Peter at this point, and uh, this is uh, going to be different. We've, we've spent a lot of time in the last couple years in the Old Testament, and so it is good to get back uh, to the New Testament. And uh, I have not preached uh, Peter in 24 years, so uh it was good to get back in and see it again. Yes, that means I'm old. Um, so turn with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, the first 12 verses. As always, please listen carefully. This is the Word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through, a res through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the book of 1 Peter to learn more about Christ and how Christ wants us to live. Lord, you had Peter write these things almost 20 centuries ago, but Peter himself tells us these are not ultimately his words. They are the Holy Spirit's words written through him. They are God's words for us. And we need your words, O Lord. And your words have never failed us. They're both true and good, so open your eyes to see them, and to understand them, and to believe them, and to walk in them. So as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning, and help us consider what it means to embrace hope as it is found in you. And so we pray, speak through the words of the Apostle Peter this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, as I said, this morning we're starting a new series on First and Second Peter, entitled Embracing Exile. And today we'll be looking at Embracing Hope from First Peter chapter 1. So hopefully you have that in front of you, and, and while you do, let me tell you about one of my favorite movie scenes. I know Frank's usually the movie guy, but... Uh, I'm stealing his thunder today. So, it's from The Return of the King. And uh, hopefully I don't have to explain much of that movie uh, to you. But uh, in the movie, Gandalf and Pippin are defending Minas Tirith. And they've retreated several times further back into the city and the battle presses on and wages all around them. And there's this constant thudding in the background of the giant troll breaking down the door, and there is nowhere left to go. And death seems inevitable. And Pippin says, I didn't think it would end this way. There is a deep peace and a quiet calm in that scene. Maybe that's why I like it so much. And Gandalf just looks at him and replies, end? Well, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one we all must take. And at this point, you can almost see Gandalf fixing his gaze on this other reality that's out there. And he says, the gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What, Gandalf, Pippin replies, see what? And Gandalf measures his words carefully. White shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, says Pippin, that isn't so bad. No, says Gandalf with a smile. No, it isn't. See, Gandalf has painted a picture. He paints a picture of what awaits. And in that picture, there's hope to face whatever comes even death. The circumstances haven't changed. The battle still rages. It seems inevitable that the city is going to fall. Death is coming, but there's hope. What is your 
picture of heaven like? If you have kids, perhaps you've seen one too many Disney movies, and so your picture of heaven is significantly influenced by the conclusion of happily ever after. Or maybe there's that art history class you took in college, so your picture of heaven is influenced by the Renaissance portrait where you're surrounded by overweight infants and wings and loosely fitting diapers sitting on cloud-storming harps. Or maybe your picture of heaven, maybe your picture of heaven is influenced by theological propositions. Uh, we could say it's the opposite of hell. Or to be reformed, I mean, if you're really reformed, you could say, it's where we go because we believe we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Of course, you'd be right. Peter wants to give you a hope of heaven that you can cling to even as Jesus takes you through the valley of the shadow of death. But I want heaven to be more than just theological propositions for you. Not just facts about the new heavens and the new earth. I want your heart to be captured by its beauty. Maybe your picture of heaven is a little more developed. Maybe your picture of heaven has been influenced by C.S. Lewis and his book, The Great Divorce. And so heaven is something more real, more substantial in reality. Or maybe you've been influenced by John Bunyan and his great uh, book, Pilgrim's Progress and his celestial city. The final destination at the end of a long journey that's beyond our wildest hopes and indescribably good. Maybe you've been influenced by biblical theology. Your picture of heaven is influenced by the Garden of Eden itself, where man had perfect communion with God, where he walked with God in the garden, where he was to have uh, rest and was created for a purpose. This morning, the Apostle Peter wants to give you a hope of heaven that you can cling to even if Jesus takes you through the valley of the shadow of death. Let me say that again. This morning, Peter wants to give you a hope of heaven that you can cling to even if Jesus takes you through the valley of the shadow of death. He introduces this whole section by saying, end of verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's what he wants. Before we go on, since we're starting a new series, it would be wise for us to understand the context a little bit before we get too far into the text. That we are going to spend the next three months with the Apostle Peter. And of course, everyone knows Peter. Everyone knows Peter. Well, almost everyone. Hollywood knows Peter. He's appeared in numerous Easter films. Catholics and Protestants alike know Peter. He's usually found at the pearly gates when anyone tells a joke about heaven. He is the leading man among the disciples. Usually he's the first one named Peter, James, and John. He's the outspoken one. He's the man of action. He's remembered for some of the most dramatic scenes in the Gospels. Peter walked on water and then sang. Peter tried to defend Christ when they came to arrest him and he pulled his sword in front of a group of soldiers. Normally not a wise thing to do. And he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Also not a wise thing to do. And for which Jesus rebuked him 
picked up the ear and put it back on. Healing the man and getting everyone's attention. Peter gave the great confession of Christ. Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he gave the great denial of Christ in Matthew 26. He began to invoke the curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter's the kind of guy who opens his mouth to change feet. We see Peter before the resurrection of Christ, and then we see Peter after the resurrection of Christ. And the change is remarkable. Pre-resurrection, Peter is actually a whole lot like you and me. His story reads a lot like our stories. He's a new believer. We see him growing in Christ and then falling. Following Christ and learning from him and then falling. Totally surrendering his life to Christ, exercising uh, enormous faith in Christ and then stumbling and falling again. Trying to be useful to God and yet winding up being an obstacle to others. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Peter's story reads a lot like ours, before the resurrection of Christ. Because then we see these powerful words in Mark 16, verse 7. Immediately after the resurrection, the angel of the Lord then tells the women who are gathered there, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And Peter. The significance of those two words can't be overstated. Because after the resurrection of Christ and the arrival of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Peter is a completely different guy. He's powerful. He's bold. He's the Peter that Jesus predicted when he changed his name from Simon to Peter, the rock. And then we read about Peter preaching his first sermon. And 3,000 people came to know Christ in part due to the power and passion of his message. Then we read about Peter having great faith and receiving the power to heal people, and we're not talking headaches. Peter heals a crippled man in Acts chapter 3. He raises Dorcas from the dead in Acts chapter 9. And then Peter gets beaten and threatened and flogged and imprisoned for sharing the gospel of Christ. In Acts 5, uh, 40 to 42, it says, And when they, meaning the council, had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. I love the way that verse ends in the New Living Translation. It says, the Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. Peter is a different guy now. He had faced the, is this true question many times, and now he's sure of the answer. And even though his faith would lead him to a martyr's death on a hill outside of Rome, where he would be crucified upside down, because he didn't feel worthy to die the same way as Lord and Savior did. He is heavy duty now. Peter is the real deal. And there's lots we can learn from him because we're a lot like him in his early days. But as we learn from him this fall, 
I'm praying that we become a lot more like him in his later days. Now, Peter has heard that there are a group of new believers hiding in Rome, fleeing from Rome, losing everything they held valuable because of their faith in Christ. And they're facing the is this true question as well. And there's, of course, one apostle hanging around who can help them answer that question, Peter. And so he writes them a letter. We have that letter as the book of 1 Peter. Things are not going well for these followers of Christ in Rome. Nero is on the throne. Nero is a total nutcase. Crisis arrives in July of AD 64 when Rome burns for three days. It was common knowledge that Nero hated Rome's architectural layout, was filled with dilapidated wooden buildings on narrow, twisted streets. And Nero had commissioned a design for a new symmetrical Rome, which he hoped would impress all the foreign dignitaries. But he couldn't convince the people they needed to rebuild the city, so he torched Rome, set it on fire. And when the fire went out, he sent men to start it up again. Well, the Roman Senate was incensed, as were the people, and Nero had to scramble. He needed a scapegoat to blame this on. And he chose Christians, and the people bought it. It's one of the great intense persecutions of Christians begun. They were arrested, imprisoned, beaten, flogged, and executed. They lost their homes and their jobs. They fled to the catacombs, which are really underground tunnels with caves off to the side designed to be used as tombs. And some of them lived there for years, never again seeing the light of day, living in tombs. Others fled Rome and lived in caves, in basements and attics, scattered from one end of the Roman Empire to the other, living as refugees. And seeing how well this general persecution was going, Nero ordered special games to be set up in the Roman Colosseum. And the people loved them. Thousands came out to cheer the spectacle, the Christians versus the gladiators. And people cheered as Christians were bludgeoned to death. The Christians versus the lions. And people cheered as Christians were ripped limb from limb. The Christians' kids versus packs of hungry wild dogs. They would sell animal skins on the children and then let the dogs loose on them. And still the people cheered. And when they finished the games, Nero would invite people to entertainment at the palace. You could let your imagination explore the depths of human depravity and you still won't get there. And they would take the Christians and dip them in vats of oil and tie them to stakes and light them on fire and use them as torches to provide light for the entertainment. We just finished a series on biblical priorities. These Christians had to figure out their priorities very quickly. First things first. They had to decide what comes first when you're suffering intense persecution. They lived in fear over what would happen to them. Some lived with deep shame for having denied Christ when a Roman soldier had a sword at the throat of their babies. I don't know too many people who could handle that. Many others were forced into slavery. Some were forced to become temple prostitutes and shame overwhelmed them. There is no end to their sorrow. 
They lost wives and husbands, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers by the score. And it is to these people, suffering, persecuted, facing trial and torture, that Peter writes to. And he writes to answer their question, is this true? The first thing he talks about is embracing grace. It's the first blank in your outline for those of you that got the outline off the website. Verses 1 and 2, embracing grace. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. What would that sound like today? I think it would sound something like, Dear aliens, to those who have fled for their lives for the sake of Christ, this is Peter. And the first thing you need to know is your salvation is no accident. If you're in a tent in Pontius, a basement in Galatia, hiding in a cave in Cappadocia, roaming around the province of Asia, or surviving in an attic in Bithynia, and you're wondering if you're really a Christian at all, I have news for you. You have been chosen by God. It's no accident you've come to know Christ in a real and personal way. It's no mistake that the Holy Spirit tugged at your heart and brought you to faith. It was by God's sovereign choice. It was by God's sovereign grace. He wanted you as part of his family. And that goes for you here this morning whether you're sitting here or online, it's no accident that you are with us. You'll spend the rest of your Christian life, I hope, becoming more and more humbled by the fact that God, in his sovereign grace, came into your life, came into your heart, led someone to share the message of Christ with you. It may be mysterious and hard to understand, but take a moment to thank God that he chose you to be a part of his family. You didn't deserve it, but that's grace, getting what you don't deserve. And Peter says, may you have more and more of it. And when you have God's grace, you have God's peace. Irrespective of the situation you're facing, the circumstances you live in, the adversity, fear, shame, and sorrow that crowd around you, Despite all that, you have God's grace, you have God's peace, guaranteed, period. Why? Because if you're in Christ, you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and no one can make you dirty again. Now that's just the greeting, verses 1 and 2. I think if I were writing the letter, the next thing I would say is, I really need to apologize to you. I had no idea that all this suffering would come your way. I feel terrible. I am so sorry. But Peter doesn't say anything like that. He's not apologetic at all. So he goes on to tell him to embrace hope. Embrace hope, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why does Peter bring up hope? Why does he say, born again to a living hope? Well, I think the answer is because the people he's writing to are going through intense suffering. If we look down at verse 6, it says, And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. These people are going through persecution. Some are being killed for their faith. They're having their houses plundered. They're going through harsh persecution. The reason the term a living hope comes up is because there is no way to get through life unless you know how to get through suffering. And there's no way to get through suffering unless you have a living hope. So Peter tells them, that's what you have. And the reality is, you're rich. You have great treasures. Look at them. Look at what you have when you have Christ. You have a God who has exercised great mercy on your behalf. Now, I'm sure some of these people didn't feel like they were on the receiving end of great mercy. It didn't look like great mercy to them, to those who were living in the caves and in the tents and who doubted themselves and who doubted God and wondered if this was real, if this was true, if this was worth it. Peter says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're out there suffering and wondering and losing hope and thinking that Christ isn't real. Maybe he's dead. Not true. He says, Jesus is alive and he's active and he's powerful and he is your hope. And probably for some of you here in Loudoun County in the fall of 2022, Often you come in here hanging by a thread. You feel like your circumstances are going to crush you. And some of you come in here perhaps today and you think, if I could only be a better Christian, I wouldn't be having the problems that I'm having in my marriage with my children, with your parents, with your job, or whatever it is where you're having problems in life. And your hope is if I could just be a better Christian, things would get better. Well, I have some bad news for you. If that's where you are, your hope is in the wrong place. Because in this passage, Peter says, there's only one place to get hope. And it's not that the hard things now are going to get easier. It's not that the bad things now are going to get better. Or that the problems weighing you down are going to go away. And that's where we get our hope from. He says that's not where we get our hope from. Our hope comes from somewhere else. So I wonder how many people, how many of you, come in here week after week, tired, frustrated, disappointed, fearful, tearful, confused, angry, bitter, or defeated, and without hope. And you're looking for hope somewhere, but you're looking in the wrong place. Well, here's the good news. For you. May not be the good news that you're expecting, but it's still good news. And that good news is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John Piper once said, I love the death and resurrection of Christ, not because they turn my life into a string of successes, but because they keep me from collapsing under a string of failures. 
And that's why Peter says, don't lose hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a living hope, a wonderful expectation because Jesus is alive. I mean, if we just chartered a plane and we flew over to Jerusalem and went to see Jesus' tomb, what would we see? Nothing. It's empty. You're going to look for a guy who's not there because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Some of you may have heard of Viktor Frankl. He was a Jewish psychotherapist who was put in the death camps during World War II, and he survived, even though he was at Auschwitz. And after war, many of the concentration camp prisoners never fully recovered. They were unable to cope with the new reality, unable to deal with all the suffering and hardship that they had been through and that they had seen. Some of it was abominable. And in Viktor Frankl's classic book called Man's Search for Meaning, he writes, only a few found an inner strength that raised them above their outward fate. Only a few were able to stay kind. Why? What created the difference? He said, life in a concentration camp tears open the human soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. What is the foundation? He counseled people. They would come to him and say, doctor, how do you handle this? How do I handle this? What do we do? And he would say, there are people who have gone ahead of us and they are watching us perhaps even God. And he said, life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. Peter says that through Christ, there is a living hope that on the one hand has all the qualifications that Viktor Frankl said you have to have. That's what separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world. We serve a risen savior, a living savior. He's your hope. You have these treasures, multiplied grace and peace, and a living hope, and this priceless inheritance that has been reserved for you by God himself. And he will protect you to such an extent that you will receive the inheritance, guaranteed. And Peter goes on, he says, not only do you have the treasures of multiplied grace and peace and a living hope, but he also tells you about embracing faith. Verses 6 through 8. Embracing faith. We have embracing grace, hope, and faith. He says, in this you rejoice. That takes a lot of nerve to tell somebody, in this you rejoice, when all they know is tears. He says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It sounds so small. He said that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's an important phrase, almost always misinterpreted. We're not talking about us giving praise and honor and glory to Jesus. He's talking about your faith resulting in praise and honor and glory when Jesus comes. 
says, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, when a goldsmith works with gold, he takes a bar of gold, puts it into a little cup called a crucible, and he puts it on a high heat and starts to melt it. And as it heats up, the imperfections and impurities rise to the top where they can be skimmed off the surface. And when the gold is so bright, the goldsmith can see his own reflection in it. He knows that it's pure. And what Peter is telling these people and what he's telling you is that you are more precious to God than mere gold. And God is refining you with these fiery trials. And he's allowing the heat to come into your life so one day he can look at your life and see Christ in you. God's desire is to see the reflection of his son in your life. So Peter tells him to rejoice. To have joy, to be truly glad. You can say, I'm going to live with joy. And my boss can't take it from me, and my old car can't take it from me, and my messy home can't take it from me, and my inconsistent spouse can't take it from me, don't look at him. And my problems, as many as they are, can't take it from me. And no matter what I have, I have these treasures, multiplied grace and peace and a living hope, and I can rejoice because I have Christ. He's my treasure, and no one can take him from me. You believe that? I actually don't think the average Christian today does. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering is simply not on the map of most Christians. And yet Peter believed it. And he tells these people, you believe it too because it's true, and your lives are the evidence of it. Although you have not seen him, you love him. <clears throat> Though you do not see him, uh, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining uh, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And soon God will see his reflection in your face. And finally, Peter reminds them to keep on embracing the gospel. Verses 9 through 12. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There is a lot there. But there's not much more I can say that the Bible doesn't already say that. So listen to these verses, 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to our God, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is that on the cross, Jesus Christ took our place, and God gave him everything we deserve. 
Think of our record of righteousness or our lack of righteousness. What does that deserve? Condemnation. What it means is if you believe in Christ, if you believe he took everything you deserve, you get from God what he deserved. You understand that? Christ took our curse, the curse we deserve, so we could get the record he deserved. That's throughout the Bible. That's what it's saying. We go back to verses 3 and 4. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What's the thing that's kept in heaven for you? An inheritance. An inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is an action of God's free grace. You are born again to a living hope through what? Through your good deeds? Through your record of righteousness? No, through the resurrection of Christ. The minute you believe something is kept for you, an inheritance, and on the last day you're going to get it. And on that day, God is going to give you everything Jesus deserves. He's going to give you his delight. He's going to give you his honor. He's going to give you his praise. He's going to give you his glory. And when that happens, it's going to make you perfect. It's going to utterly purify you. Do you believe that? Is that a living reality to you? If so, it'll completely change the way you look at everything. It's going to change the way you look at heaven. It's going to change the way you look at Jesus. It's going to change how you look at worship. It's going to change how you look at the Lord's Supper. What's kept for you, what's coming, is the approval of the King. And knowing that you are His living hope is what makes Him your living hope. And you have to personalize that. Because until you're looking at him and loving him, he won't be your living hope. The living hope is not mansions in glory. It's your shepherd, your brother, your savior, your king, at the end of time, arms wide open, ready to treasure you, ready to utterly change you forever. The approval that you really want, that you're sucking out of everybody else, the wealth that you really want that you're sucking out of everybody else, the honor that you really want that you're sucking out of everybody else is all found in his heart. And it's going to come down on you and finally you'll have what you're built for. So knowing that you are his living hope will make him your living hope. And nothing else and nothing less. Because Christianity is simply and ultimately only about Christ. It's about knowing Christ in a real and personal way. And it's in this relationship with Christ that meaning and purpose to life can be found, sometimes even in the midst of intense pain and suffering. I think the Apostle Peter, who's a lot like us, would say that a life lived in Christ is always worth it. If you're a real person living a real life, trusting in a real Savior, Jesus, then yes, Christianity is real, and it's true, and it's worth it. And Jesus has caused us to be born again to this new hope. We were hopeless, now we have hope. We don't have our own hope, we have a new hope. 
a living hope because life only has meaning if we have hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. And that's what we have. And that's the good news. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.